North Idaho is home to beautiful mountains and scenic lakes, small-town tranquility, civil freedom, and the faithful Lutheran parish of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, located in Hayden, Idaho, near Coeur d'Alene. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church is a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. If you like what you hear on Brief History, then you will love Blessed Sacrament where the Lord's Word is faithfully preached and Christ's body and blood are administered at every divine service. Whether you are visiting Idaho or considering moving to Idaho, wouldn't it be nice? Please join the saints of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church for the Mass and Augsburg Academy Bible Study. Directions, service times, and much more information about this confessional, liturgical parish may be found at blessedsacramentlutheranchurch.com. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, Historic Christian Orthodoxy, the Evangelical Lutheran Faith in the Beautiful Inland Northwest. At 7,123 feet, you can find mountains soaring above you and rivers running swiftly in the valley below you, natural beauty of every kind. But our God is richer in his gifts than this. At 7,123 feet in Pagosa Springs, Colorado, you can also find God's Word preached purely and His sacraments given out for your salvation at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School. Located off US 160, just west of downtown Pagosa, Our Savior offers your children a wonderful place to learn of Christ and His wisdom week in and week out and offers you the medicine of immortality Sunday in and Sunday out. Our Savior Lutheran School provides a Christ-focused classical education that enriches the child's soul with the best that has been thought and said to the glory of God. Whether you visit while vacationing or hunting in the beauty of the area, or whether you would like to join a group of faithful Lutheran Christians, our Savior, Pagosa Springs, has what you're looking for. Divine service with Holy Communion is each Sunday at 9 a.m., and Bible class follows at 10.30. At more than a mile high, you will find Christ in all his glory in the midst of his people at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School, a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. Find out more at oslcpagosa.org. What I want to ask you, Dr. Koontz, is how on earth, given given what we know about David Lynch and him being the prophetic, insightful, complete filmographer that, that you have told us he is, how did he ruin Dune so completely? <laughs> well, he didn't. I will uh, stick up for David Lynch's version of Dune all day. You're going to have he, a hard what? time with that one, man. There's a lot of haters mm-hmm. on that one right there. Yeah. Because uh, what he's doing is trying to exercise some kind of creative authority over the material, which if you want, you know, I mean, people can't sit there for four hours. Certainly American moviegoers can't sit there for four hours. So, you know, that that was doomed uh, from the start. But uh, what he's trying to do is treat it as a a set of uh, mythological stories about a world similar to Lord of the Rings. And uh, if it had been... uh, more successful, I think that you'd have something like the feedback loop between movies, the movies and the books that you get with Tolkien, which has contributed enormously to Tolkien's popularity because there was a there was a Tolkien boom at first in the 60s and 70s. And then 
a lot of that was forgotten for a while before he was picked up again because of the movies. So I think, I think that Lynch could have done something like that for Dune if he had been a little more savvy about uh, how he produced the movie. And if there had been greater tolerance from the, uh, you know, let's, financial and production authorities i was thinking the screaming geeks you know they, they, they are they will tell you the way it should be done and it's only the way they see it and th- that tends to be what uh, the rabid fan will, will do to anything are you going to see the new movie have you seen the new movie i haven't seen the new movie i'm i'm considering it my uh one of my twitter oracles uh and the nature of my presence on twitter will remain a mystery but thomas 777 has reviewed it positively. So, uh, you know, that, that gave me some pause. Generally, I see nothing, you know, produced after roughly 1990, but I might make an exception in this case. Yeah. I, I'm contemplating breaking my fast. I mean, I haven't watched a movie since Christmas of last year, and that was the first movie I'd watched in probably six months. And uh, I, I don't know. I'm not sure that my psyche can actually stand two hours plus of, of visual effects and whatnot. Um, but I've been invited by someone locally to to view it, and so I'm thinking about it. I I, I just don't know though. Um, I just don't know. I've I've never read all the books, so that's actually what I would do yeah. and I'm going to do. I'm actually I, planning. To I, do I that, really so. recommend you don't read all the books. I really do. I recommend you read the first book, and then if you would like to be disappointed, read books two and three. But after that, <laughs> just give up because. <laughs> Unlike Tolkien, uh, for whatever reason, and this is, of course, going to be debated by whoever wants to scream and geek about it, uh, <laughs> after uh, the first book, which is a complete book, I mean, he, he really finishes the mythology in one book. He decides to go back and tear it all down so he can do yeah. more. And it just gets it gets deeper and deeper into insanity. And I don't even know what I'm doing, it, it would seem. And, and I gave up, again, I think after book four, finally. Uh, okay. So uh, it does... It does have a very different tenor than that initial book, which I would put up there as my absolute favorite work of fiction. Uh, Tolkien's trilogy, of course, is significant, and I would put uh, Watership Down probably right there with Dune, if not above it at the end of the day, uh, as a, at what one of the best things ever written in terms of what is man, but a book about rabbits of all things. Are you familiar with Watership Down? I assume you are. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's I, and I I think that the search for female rabbits in that book is somewhat pertinent to what we're doing today because I I think that when you're talking about the rebuilding of civilization, you're talking about a mainly, if not generally, entirely male endeavor. If you're talking about the preservation and extension of life, you're talking about men with women. We're talking more civilizationally today, but as we get into some subjects that we'll do after, you know, this kind of <laughs> mini series on renewal or, or rebuilding, we'll be talking more about male and female relationships because they'll be, they'll be more pertinent right, right. Um, for, for my guy, Justinian. It's, <laughs> it's not as important. So that's a fascinating thought there, just that rebuilding and preserving is a male task in part because what they must preserve is the women. Uh, and, and I will come back to that, I'm sure. I want to have one question here from yeah. our Brief History of Power Discord channel chat, wherein someone a little behind in their in their listening, and I, I don't blame you, although when Tiawaki happens, it's your own fault, you know, is all I got to say, if you're not, <laughs> if you're not on the ball here. Yeah, we, but, t- we already told you so. Yeah, so. right. Um, but he, he says, uh, you know, I'm a bit behind in BHOP, but seriously, holding Caulfield as a gifted youth who learns in spite of his education, I must have read different versions of The Catcher in the Rye, the book Irritated 
irritated me so much I had to take 10 minute break from listening to the show after the episode about private schools. Now, Interestingly, mm-hmm. this is someone who's related to me. Um, and I wrote back, you know, uh, Holden Caulfield as kid who hated concentration camp is a little different than it's the gospel of the catcher in the rye. Um, but I want right. to give you a chance to, to throw back at that one as well. Yeah. And I don't remember if I said that or if you said that. We but both I, had I like one sentence. It was, I thought it was pretty small, really. Okay. I, I mean, the, the thing that is at least somewhat appealing about the catcher in the rye is that until you have been entrapped in such a camp, the, the exhilaration of freedom from it uh, is something you can't really identify with. So if you love going to school or if you were simply overwhelmed by irritation at J.D. Salinger's character, that's totally fine. I can actually sympathize with that. But I fully support his desire to be rid of his uh, New England or suburban New York boarding school and to find uh, some modicum of freedom in the city. Yeah, that's about where I was just in terms of, I think, junior year in high school, having read through enough classics uh, kind of by force fed uh, and then having to sit there and take notes and pass tests and everything. And then you get to this one kid who's like, I hate school. And I'm like, oh, this book's great. You know, I, <laughs> yeah. It wasn't yeah, like I read. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's hardly, though, the, the right answer to say education or let's make that real steg here to rebuilding a civilization uh, yeah. or building one in the first place. So. We've done a lot here in the last, what, month and a half, two months on the collapse of society. And I think for obvious reasons, because we're in the middle of one that's at least been going on since they started looting post-World War II, but now it seems to be amping up with, uh, what, taxing unrealized gains and all sorts of other voodoo that they're going to do next. Uh, I saw something recently about, you know, removing uh, paper money and uh, whatever. We're clearly in collapse. We've dealt with collapse, but we've also made the case the entire time that, wait, 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 the collapse is kind of already done. It's building time now, right? Right. So uh, with that in mind, why Justinian, a guy who most people, I'll I'll raise my hand. I I know his name, but that's about it. Yeah. And by the time the show airs, it may actually be close to the date of his commemoration in strangely the Eastern Orthodox church and the Lutheran church. And that's it, which is November 14th. And the reason I picked him is because he is clearly born after the fall of the Roman empire in the West. He is probably the last Byzantine, although he would call himself Roman. They didn't use the term Byzantine, the last Roman emperor to speak Latin as his native language. And I picked him not least because the listener really can't do anything about the National Security Agency, probably. And if you can, you're either being paid to listen to this show or you have some very tough choices ahead of you, if not also behind you. If you can, I just got to tell you, patreon.com slash RevFisk, please, please, please. You obviously are an elite <laughs> and you can, you can forward things tremendously for us, right? <laughs> well, I think, yeah. <laughs> and so I think, the reason, the reason I picked him is because the listener is a single human being and has various callings on his life or could have callings on his life in the future that could be immensely profitable. So I didn't want to pick an entire group because I'm not sure all the different groups that you are part of, religious, familial, political, whatever they are. There are lots of examples we could have chosen there, but I picked a man because I wanted the series on rebuilding to come rather quickly to a head as a solution to the series on collapse. 
and Justinian is born after the thing has already happened that many of us use as an analogy for what will soon happen to us. But in order to support the idea that collapse has already occurred, that, I mean, I, I pick up books all the time where I can tell that this man who's in a similar position in life to what I am was vastly better educated than I was because he was born in 1886 and not 1986. Or I can tell that life was just more pleasant for a wide variety of reasons on a daily basis for my grandparents than it was for me, although they were technically, according to some kind of, you know, economic development index, poorer at the same time of life than I am. So collapse of many, many, many things has already occurred. So rather than waiting for things to occur that may or may not occur. What could you do if you realized that things had already fallen apart in many ways, not entirely? So Justinian is not born into, and this is, I think, one of the biggest problems that people have is that their minds are shaped probably more by zombie movies than by historical instances of decline. So Justinian is born into an empire under siege in the West, wanting to reclaim its territory and perpetually, at least potentially, and often actually at war in the East with the Persians. And they call themselves the Romans. And at least some of them still speak Latin. And his major legal legacy will be written down in Latin. So he lives his entire life in what we would now think of as Macedonia, Greece, and Turkey. But he speaks Latin as well as Greek. And he is born after collapse, enormous loss of territory, especially in the Western part of the empire has already occurred. So you're born with the knowledge that things used to be much better. That's why I picked him. Yeah. So he's aware that, that the life he's been promised isn't there, right? Uh, The life of the myth is gone and it's become, become a myth. Right. I mean, the, the the meaning of the term imperium has changed because although it, it means, you know, the authority or the power that the emperor or the emperor in the name of the Romans, in the name of the Roman people possesses, the reality of it is much smaller than it was about a hundred years before his birth. Maybe to throw it back to our previous episodes. So Imperium has been replaced with Homeland Security. (laughs) Imperium is for Romans more like, and I, this is probably something we'll talk about a little more next week. Imperium is more like not just the constitution for Americans, but a really big, important, therefore somewhat vague, but rhetorically very effective thing like freedom or liberty or rights, you know, from nature and nature's God, right? It is, it is an enormous concept that in people's minds undergirds and justifies the existence of their way of life, not just their government, but their way of life. And the replacement of that with mere bureaucratic functioning, or in our case, homeland security that can also eviscerate those liberties or that way of life. Imperium is important to recover and recovery will be the the main work of Justinian's life. So what is it that brings about the collapse that he's in the midst of? 
it's largely an incapacity to govern increasingly larger parts of the territory, especially in the West, and especially after the very politically realistic transfer of the seat of power, the major seat of power from Rome in Italy to Byzantium or Constantinople in what's now Turkey. So that combined with a lot of other factors, including something that I think we've mentioned before, but if this makes sense, the idea that in the Roman Empire, whether in East or West, increasingly by the third, fourth, fifth centuries, and Justinian is born at the very tail end of the fifth century, the empire is still of the Romans, or it is still the Roman Empire. But the idea that actually ethnic Romans <laughs> compose any anything like a majority or actually govern the empire is increasingly not the case. So you have a vast array of peoples and people groups inside, outside, and on the borders of the empire. And that ethnic variety eventually leads to political disintegration So because I, there's nothing else unifying them. Is that intersectionality then? Uh, no, uh, not, not even in the case where the, the Roman empire itself is an enemy because there will be other tribes that will side with the Romans. So in the same sense that when we were talking about vaccine mandates, I said one of the missteps politically that's been made has been allowing white Christian males to side potentially with black, potentially Christian males or females because both groups are unvaccinated is very similar in the shifting alliances within and on the borders of the Roman Empire because, you know, the Franks might have some desire to take over Roman territory or to come inside the empire and, and largely administer positions, but then they might ally themselves with other German tribes or be allied against those tribes. Just depends on political and historical circumstance and immediate benefit. I would say that one of the things that happens there is that when the polity is so obviously not matched up <laughs> with the desires or the interests of the groups now in it, right? Like the polity has survived, but the nations or the nation that, that justified that polity have not survived largely. Then what you have is an enormous amount of short-term thinking because no one is committed to these long-term institutions or ideals who's not actually Roman. Part of the significance of Justinian is that he is actually, I mean, we're not talking on the level of like, hey, let's get a genetic test and see how he lines up with Romulus, but he grows up completely Latin in what's now the country of North Macedonia. So his sense of himself is of an heir to a very long tradition and that's very different than someone who grew, who could have been born in the exact same year, right outside the actual city of Rome, which Justinian was not, who thought of himself as a German. You know, maybe he would go on to form, you know, the Lombards, right, in northern Italy. So Justinian thinks of himself as an heir to something. And that's very important for his sense of what he's doing with his life. In terms of the things that we see currently making uh, well, rule difficult 
the collapse of currency, uh, military weakness and or uh, changing ideologies that are undermining what used to make it strong and a, a language that is no longer really sufficient to tell the truth. I mean, I, since he's the last Latin speaker, language is probably, or, you know, Latin speaking empire, emperor, the language probably has something to do with this collapse. Can you, can you talk about those three things and the similarities there? Are there similarities? Is it different? Is someone looting the, the dollar, so to speak, back then? No, no. And the ancient understanding that the well-being of agriculture is the foundation of civilization is not contravened in his time. So the value of the solidus, which is the basic coin, coinage, however, being much, much rarer uh, in his time than in ours. And certainly there's no such thing as, you know, non-fungible uh, assets of all right. the kinds that we have. In terms is, of, oh, go ahead. Yeah. What, what, what I mean is there's no, you know, there's, there's no crypto, there's no stable coins. There's no, there's no just kind of like, you know, numbers changing on a computer screen representing wealth. Okay. And the currency is not, is not notably debased either before or during his reign. So they are not in, and this does differ from us, they are not in some sort of very difficult food supply logistics situation, okay? The collapse is in this sense almost entirely military and political. And how is that military collapse? Is it, is it a lack of strength? Is it a lack of will? Uh, is it shifting allegiances within the military ranks? It's, it's all those things. And also the fact that if the West is what's being lost, then that is much farther now since Constantine's change of the capital to what becomes Constantinople. That's much farther away. What is going on in Gaul or Spain or North Africa, much farther away than it used to be from the center of power. So there is increasing incapacity to get reliable military units, especially in the West, partly because there are fewer and fewer Romans. There are enormous numbers of, let's, I mean, honestly, essentially slave labor populations on the Italian peninsula. So the way that, I mean, people have probably noticed if they've noticed anything about Italy is that Southern Italians often look very distinct from Northern Italians. That's because Southern Italians were largely shipped there from the middle, what's now the Middle East. So there's there's increasingly nobody, and it's very far away from home, to staff the empire. And we have talked about this in, the, in terms of our American, let's just call it for the sake of comparison, empire, is if this is built by, you know, the, what are now the targets of intersectionalities, you know, arrows, white Christian males, then who is going to staff it if they're not allowed to staff it? or they're not allowed to be in positions of authority or decision-making capacity in it. Okay. Who are, who is going to be there? Who will maintain those things or extend those things? So you have a similar situation in addition to simply military problems that anyone could encounter by virtue of misfortune in West and East, because he's born into an empire that has two unstable borders. Linguistically, He's also born into an empire that is increasingly simply Greek speaking, but still calling itself Roman. And this will always continue down to 1453 when Constantinople falls to the Ottomans. 
it will think of itself as Roman, even though at that point, Latin is not even the language of its, you know, mustiest law books. It's all Greek at that point. But Justinian is still on the cusp of that change and himself is a native Latin speaker. Just to highlight something you've said repeatedly, at least I think maybe more privately, uh, the capacity to move and have trigger pullers and how essential that is to yeah. any form of governance. And yeah. Um, so, yeah, and a border, or a war on two borders, you know, being caught in the middle, that's not going to be good for, for anybody. I don't know why we would do it to ourselves, but oh, then again, we did, didn't we now? Um, yeah. Many times these days. So is that enough for his background? <laughs> uh, do you want to come yeah. into uh, yeah. how yeah, he comes into so. power? I mean, what, what is he? he? He's sitting in a back room making podcasts. He decides he wants to be emperor and he speaks. Loud. That's right. Here we go. Yeah. <laughs> well, he, I, 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 there are, there are two things here. One about his rise to power is his obvious personal military capacities demonstrated before he comes to the throne. And those are to some extent battlefield capacities, but they are simply the capacity to command men. But I don't just mean giving orders. I also mean commanding loyalty because that is a trait that will be observable throughout his life is the capacity to inspire and therefore expect and receive loyalty himself. So he will be able to entrust very large projects, some of which we'll talk about to others. Right. Yeah. And that is very important for his capacity to reign as long as he does, which is almost 40 years and as notably successfully as he does. So that is something that is honed in his, you know, young manhood. He comes to the throne when he's in his middle thirties in his younger manhood, he hones the capacity to inspire and to demonstrate, but, but therefore also to command loyalty combined with that. Right. So actual demonstration of ability is important, but he, he cannot and does not rise through pure meritocracy. And this is not really exceptional to the Byzantines. So I'll say it rather prescriptively is that the idea of a pure meritocracy seems to me to be a complete fiction. Yeah. It seems basically impossible (laughs) to do because you need at least some degree of personal acquaintance with people in order to, to see their merits. It's not what you know is who you know. Yeah. This is really clear. Yeah. And so he is adopted by his uncle, Justin, Justinian being only part of his name and sort of a tribute to his uncle. He's adopted by his uncle as his heir to the throne. Okay. So he's born into a relatively high-born family with a sense of service to the institution of the empire. That's very important. So I don't look at this as pure nepotism in the sense that we would say, oh, he, it's some kind of shady insider deal. It is insider. There are always insiders. That's unavoidable in human groups, I think. But the issue here is that there are other insiders who are not adopted as his uncle's heir. There are other insiders of lesser military ability. There are other insiders of lesser capacity to command, right? So meritocracy is fine, I think, as kind of a minor dynamic within a group that whatever its privileges also understands itself to be fundamentally in the service of the nation, of the church, of whatever much larger group, right? 
And I think that part of people's fascination with equality, as well as meritocracy, is a certain blindness to the idea that we live in groups. And because we do, you will find some people rising to the top or the middle or, or going down to the bottom of a group, but the group exists independent of that person's abilities. Justinian did not see himself as serving himself primarily, but serving the empire primarily, which will be demonstrated in his work ethic. Which comes back to this idea that uh, men do not follow ideology, but men follow men who do follow ideology. It also reminds me of uh, John Quincy Adams and uh, how he became our our third president, right? Uh, Fourth? Fourth. Um, You would know that better than me, the actual number. But, you know, uh, the son of the man who was raised within an insider group with a certain understanding and a commitment to uh, an ideology, right? Um, Can you say if you are defending the great man theory of history or not? I think that the the great man theory of history is, you know, in some what in some articulations of it is is predicated on <laughs> to be honest just an obsession with napoleon uh, by <laughs> okay. 19th century europeans okay that's awesome none nonetheless the idea that great men combined with military history is not the primary stuff of history with everything else being ancillary truly i mean and that word means helping or assisting ancillary everything else is ancillary because you can know everything about a country's agricultural history and its economics and any other factor, if you don't know who commanded whom and who died for what, I really don't think you know anything. Yeah. Huh. Good. So, so I, I, I think that one of the reasons that I'm highlighting a man is because it also, unlike the way that history is sometimes taught, even in you know elementary school, high school level, the great man theory of history gives you a sense of agency when you reflect upon it too. So it may not be that you're born you know near the top of an imperial system. That's okay. You are in charge of something, even if it's just yourself. And the idea that you are here to be helpless and to let things happen to you or to wait for bad things to happen to you is the reason that I picked somebody who was born after a certain kind of collapse for his own group's most important sense of themselves, which is their their destiny to extend their reign as far as possible, and nonetheless did a great deal with what he was given. Yeah, um, that's that's a really good answer. I guess I'm, being not the scholar that most of our listeners are and that you are, I, I play fast and loose with terms like great man theory and didn't realize how close, closely it was tied to just Napoleon, although it reminds me again of one of my favorite stories of him. He's, he's coming back from exile and he meets some troops who are supposed to arrest him and he's like, follow me. And they do. And I, I mean, how do you do that? Uh, loyalty, right? <laughs> yeah. Loyalty. I mean, right. then that's what we're kind yeah. of getting at here. Yeah. Um, and uh, if I can just add one more thing and then you could take it from there, I would say that if I know anything about loyalty and I, I'm not a master, but it's that you got to have it first to others before they're going to have it for you. And, and there's something yeah. there. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that is contained in the idea. And I, I consciously picked a Christian man and indubitably, unlike say Constantine the first an indubitably Christian man, because in the Byzantines and in their capacity to keep going, what they will still call the Roman empire until 
close to the end of what we call the Middle Ages, they are bringing to the fore a concept of leadership that is self-consciously modeled on the Caesars of old, but also on Christ. And that understanding of leadership, for lack of a better term, is that if you do not have the capacity to serve others, either in a position of authority or before you come into such a position, you have no right to expect their loyalty or service either. That the art of command involves also great love and service on your own part. And I think that can be applied at any level of human life, which is why I think it's, it's interesting to note Justinian's loyalty to his own and to his family, even before he becomes emperor. So what difficulties does he find? I mean, he sounds like he's got the silver spoon a little bit in his mouth, just, just a touch. <laughs> his immediate difficulties have to do with at least two things. One is more immediate than the other, but I want to save it for a second. The one that happens a couple years after his accession to the throne is what is now remembered by historians as the plague of Justinian. So this lasts from 531 to 533. His, his accession is in the late 520s. He will be on the throne until the 560s. And this plague is, by the estimates of any demographer that's worked on it, the greatest loss of human life in Byzantium prior to the, the Black Death in the Middle Ages. So it's enormous. It goes on for at least two years very actively throughout much of the Byzantine realm. And Justinian himself contracts the plague hmm. and survives. So unlike earlier difficulties, which were also fairly widespread, such as famines that he dealt with, but didn't was not personally affected by, he is himself laid low by this plague, but but comes back from it. I think it is notable that a lot of ideas, if you look into the plague of Justinian, about how ancient people thought about medicine are to some degree debunked by this. They, they understood, for example, that partly because of the lack of modern plumbing, cities were the most dangerous place to be. The emperor, unfortunately for him, doesn't have much of a choice. He has to live in the city. But many people understand that if you flee from that, it will be healthier in the countryside. And the Byzantine Empire is although it has some very large cities, is largely agricultural. And that's, that's going to be very helpful to it in making it through this plague, not being completely politically destroyed by it. The other major difficulty, and this is really the focus of most of his intellectual legacy, although he did write some treatises on theology that have never been translated um, into English, but his major intellectual legacy is the clarification of the law. And this is something that might sound really dry to the listener, but you interact every day with the fact that our law and our legal system do not seem to be designed to make sense or to protect your rights in large measure. They are very obviously designed to be lucrative to those who can profit from that system, but they're not seemingly designed at this point. They're not simple. They're not clear. They're not easy to understand. They're not designed to protect your rights or to uphold and defend our constitutional you know, principles or laws. So he's going to engage several people, uh, a combination of clergymen and also lawyers, 
especially a, a man named Trebonian, with collating all of the law of Roman antiquity that they can get their hands on. And he's going to produce several things, including a textbook uh, out of this project. But this will be the foundation of civil law in most of Europe uh, down to today. Um, and even in the case of Louisiana, parts of American law. And what it's going to do is clarify the laws of the past for the sake of the future. So obvious contradictions can just be thrown out. Clarifications are needed. Simplicity and clarity are desired. This is something like what Confucius talks about when in talking about political dysfunction. He says that the first thing that the wise man needs to do is to rectify names. That is, he has to learn to call things what they are. And if he can't do that, then not to speak concerning them. And if a, if a state, but also in the case of the law of Justin, the laws of Justinian, this will also undergird church law, even, even ours and the LCMS to some degree, let's say by heritage, this is the source of church order of, of canon law. Those principles are things that we really can't do without. And if we don't understand them, then we will be governing ourselves in a way that is chaotic or really not governing ourselves at all. So it's not, I think, that Justinian believes like, quote, in pieces of paper, right? Which is a way that people talk about the U.S. Constitution and lots of other things. And I understand why they do that, because the paper itself doesn't govern you, right? Having the right thing on paper doesn't, you know, save a church, nor does the Constitution as paper save the United States of America. The point is that the clarity that is written down is then designed to be exercised and enforced. That's the point. And if I don't have clarity of thought, I can't have clarity of action in government or church or any realm of life. And so he puts, especially Trebonian, in charge of clarifying what are we doing, how do we govern ourselves, and what, especially in the textbook that's produced by this called the Institutes, what are the principles that we could teach to students of the law, undergirding all those different laws that we have on the books. And so that, that clarity is going to become extremely important for how he governs uh, the realm internally. Uh, one of my favorite sections of the Bible is Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Uh, because the preacher was wise, he taught the people knowledge. Yes, he pondered and sought out and set in order many, well, it says Proverbs, and it is the word for the book of Proverbs, Mashal, but if you look it up, it actually just means words, actually. And the preacher sought to find acceptable words, that'd be the Devar word in Hebrew, and what was written was upright, words of truth, verse 11, here's the one, the words of the wise are like goads, the words of the scholars like well-driven nails given by one shepherd. Uh, it seems to me that good rulers in history who are known for it have this very idea to rectify yeah. the names. Why is Plato valuable, right? Why, 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 why do we go back to common law? Because the words are clear. And this is kind of what I was saying before then about, you know, the language devolution of the current state and its uh, similarity then it would seem to the state that Justinian found things in, even if it's not all of Latin or all of Greek or, or whatever, uh, yeah. the words by which you are living your life, the more watered down they become. Uh, the the worst philosophy they force you to live by, and right. until we clarify that, um, yeah, we we have nothing to talk about. Can I get? Uh, I 
respond to that, but can I get uh, that reference, The Institute? Is that a book we can get in English? The Institutes, yeah, you can get it in English. It's one part of the four that compose altogether the legal project that he engaged in. But yeah, you can get the Institutes in English would at be this point. Would it by Justinian? Is that who you would look for the author to be? Or the, Probably, yeah. yeah. I mean, search terms, Institutes Justinian, you'll find it. All right, awesome. I, I, I think in response to what you just said that it it is extremely important to stress that you have to have conversations even perhaps beginning with yourself about things that you know are occurring that are extremely difficult to talk about maybe because you don't have words or because it's painful or a combination of those things or something else altogether you have to be able to discuss it if you can't say openly these two things that are on the books, let's say in, in your life are completely contradictory, then there can be no rectification alignment with the right occurring. Nothing, nothing productive is going to happen if you let the contradictions just sit there and don't do anything about them or sort of wave it away. Or I think most often you just kind of draw a curtain in front of it. When you call something a vaccine that has nothing to do with cows, unless it's the fact <laughs> yeah. that maybe they think yeah. you are one, you know, what are you going to do? Inoculation seems to be a better word. I can I can barely make myself say it, though, because vaccine is such a what, preponderant word. Right. Yeah. Conversations with self are e unimaginable things in the integrity of life. Going back to you, you brought up zombies, not me. Uh, but, you know, when we sit here and you think something like, wow, it's like we're living in the zombie apocalypse. And that's the only way. You can talk about it. You actually can't really talk about it, right? There right. isn't yep. uh, clarity right. when you try to convey your metaphor haha, uh, to somebody else. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The, the capacity to express yourself clearly to yourself, which is increased largely by reading, but also by conversation, is absolutely invaluable because it allows you to be much clearer about what is salutary and what is cancerous. Hmm. And if you can't do that, or you, your institution can't do that, then I assure you that you or your institution or whatever it is that you want to preserve will be overtaken by what is cancerous. That's how these things work. It's very easy to achieve evils. It's very hard to achieve good things. That's right. You can do evil a lot faster, it would seem. I've been right. on a bit of a, a quest for clarity uh, ever since I read this book, uh, How to Take Smart Notes. Uh, How to Take Smart Notes? Yeah, by Sanka Ahrens. And if you follow my other stuff, you've heard me talk about this. Uh, over the last couple of years, trying to to figure out what that book really taught me, and, and this is uh, very pertinent to what we're saying now, I have found that the primary reason to write on paper and then leave it and come back to it is to learn how to disagree with myself uh, in real time, uh, to find the value of an idea as time itself contradicts it. You can do this on a computer screen, but it's just tougher. Things get lost so much easier. You really can't lose that pile of paper as messy as, as it becomes. And then there is something quite potent, even exponential in looking at a note you wrote down, discovering that it is not right, but it's not really wrong either. It just needs to be maybe elaborated on, uh, expanded on, or activated in some way. Uh, when you then write it down again and clarify 
what you at first thought was clear, but now it becomes better. You know, classically you'd call this editing. Uh, but when you do that with your own thoughts, the the level up it gives you to clear thinking everywhere else in life is again pertinent. It is it is palpable. Uh, and reading, writing your own writing, and then bringing into that the good words of others. Uh, Mad Christian Mondays, we just put out, when, by this come to time it comes out as a show, it's a couple weeks ago, there's a quote from Luther out of his table talk on uh, reading just a few books regularly rather than just the, the widespread of novelty that, that can collapse your mind. So start feeding yourself those regular words that you can know, yeah, especially the ones you discover from your own pondering. And then as you point out, uh, take that into conversation with others and locally see if you can all find out how to talk and understand each other. Easier said than done. And yet not as tough if you'll just start what unplugging a little bit and really wrestling with what do I think? Uh, there's a pile of notes on my desk under the category, how to survive societal collapse. Um, it stuns me that's even there, but that, that note card and as a top piece of a whole bunch of other stuff, I don't know, it showed up six, seven, eight months ago, probably out of this show, but I, how many people in the world are wondering that right now, realistically? And then if you do wonder that, how would you assess whether it's even a good question to ask? And I, again, contend that losing it in the white noise of, of interstellar, not interstellar, inner digital space makes it much more difficult than letting something sit in your desk look at it for a few days, and then write it down again. Uh, you will not be disappointed in the level up of your clarity, at least for your own mind. Hmm. So do you want to move on? Or you want to respond to that? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that I, I want to just mention a couple, a couple projects in connection with, if you're thinking about people in history who have achieved a great deal, you have to understand that the process of self-criticism has to be primary and ongoing. That is, if you're in a certain position and it could be, you know, unassailable, you are the father of your family, you are the pastor of your church. And even if your children rejected you or your church rejected you, it would do serious harm to them. And they actually know that even if they have severe critiques of you, there's a, there are positions in which people will not be able to tell you to your face what is wrong with you. And this is the danger of those positions, and especially being emperor. It's not that no one criticizes Justinian. And at the end of the show, I'd like to talk about an instance in which he almost lost the throne. But no one is going to tell him on a daily basis what is wrong with him. He will work diligently, essentially every day, seeing people, sending messages, receiving messages, commanding things, just an extremely busy man. If you are in such a situation, your life will become the art of sifting out what is worthwhile concentrating on. But once you figure out what is worthwhile, that's you need to do that wholeheartedly. You can't jump from one thing to another rapidly and expect to achieve anything worthwhile because your mind, in order to make decisions well or express itself well, needs time and respite to do so. And I'm not really just talking about the internet or something I think that this is an incapacity for quiet and therefore for self-criticism that very easily occurs when, because you're alone, there's no one to impress, <laughs> that people struggled to attain when books were relatively uncommon, let alone the internet. So in the things for which he is best known by historians, which is largely his support of the Christologically Orthodox Church, 
in the empire, as well as his recapture through military commanders of large portions of the empire in the West, in Italy, in North Africa, in Spain, not achieving his goal of getting everything back, but achieving a great deal. Those are things that require enormous concentration. And I think that the division of attention is a worse example, but not actually historically totally unknown before the internet or something of the division of energy and time that always ensures that the things that you're trying to do will fail. I think that one of the things that you find with a man like this is an intense capacity for work behind which is a capacity for focus. And the internet is a huge problem in that. But in addition to that, there's also the allurement of, you know, enjoying your position rather than using it for the service that it's intended to do that can also cause you not to focus and could have done so in, you know, 555 as well as today. So I think that it's, it's something to understand is that if there is going to be renewal of something in our lifetimes, if rebuilding is going to occur, focus on an individual level and not in addition to that, you know, not talking about it, right? Like Justinian isn't leaving us like, here are my tweets about why I'm such a focused individual, right? You just have to do things without self-consciousness. That is how something gets achieved. In that way, he's very different from Marcus Aurelius, <laughs> who objectively achieves so much less, but leaves us a whole book about what a wise man he is. Focus is absolutely essential for achieving the things that he did achieve. Yeah. I want to amplify you know, the idea that the internet is more of a catalyst for the loss of attention than in and of itself, just this evil thing. With that, how would one rightly assess its impact on their life while they're actively using it? I think that's where you can't. Uh, and until you spend some time at least trying to live with less of it, uh, you can't see how much it has misfocused you. And kind of by definition is where you go when you would like to lose focus. When you are yeah. not able to focus on the present because it's too quiet or too overwhelming or too whatever that feeling might be, it just makes it easier to escape into the misfocus. Uh, right. Not that it's a tool you can never use or anything like that. Um, although, yeah. You know, why not? Maybe there are demons actually running on the inside in the gears. Just go look up <laughs> Elon Musk and magic in the codes or whatever. I don't know where that was somewhere in, on the <laughs> dystopic cosmic horror channel. Someone pointed out how they're trying to build like computer chips in the shape of old magical symbols, whatever. Let's just talk about renewal of the empire and promotion of the church and how those things kind of went hand in hand. Yeah. Yeah. And they, they go hand in hand as his, as his focus. And his focus is something that is the restoration or the most common term that's used is renovatio, renewal, the renewal of the empire of the Romans, imperii romanorum. And that renewal means the recovery of what was theirs. That is why he sends commanders notably into the West. He also fights against the Persians at various times, but that's, that's mostly basically to keep them off his back so that he can focus on the recovery of territory in the West, which, like I said, was not, you know, entirely successful, but it was, it was largely successful. And that renewal included for him the promotion of the church, 
that is not only within his legal code, but also within his life efforts, including his theological writings and uh, his role in the Fifth Ecumenical Council, is his desire to see the church unified and flourishing. I'm not going to get into the difficulties that they encountered or the theological you know, problems that were there at the time, but to view it let's just say on a sheerly political level, he is successful in extending the reach of Christologically Orthodox Christianity in both East and West through the tirelessness of his efforts over his entire life, over his entire reign. For those things and for the success that he met with, he was criticized in his own lifetime. So as we draw to a close, I want to talk about two criticisms of him one much later to start with and and one in his own lifetime and what came out of that. The one that comes much later is that in Dante's Paradiso, his account of the tour of heaven conducted for the poet by Beatrice, the beloved, Justinian is encountered. So Justinian is among the blessed, although he's not on the Roman sanctoral calendar for whatever reason, I don't know. But he's encountered and he confesses that he was Caesar, but now he is Justinian. Hmm. Cesare fui uh, e son Justiniano. And the point there is that his baptismal name, or part of it anyway, his baptismal name is something that he does not put off, but the being Caesar was mixed with a sinful desire for fame. And there are lots of things. You can go look this up. This is in Cantos 5 through 7 of the Paradiso. When you look this up, you can see, you know, Dante saying, look, you know, we used to be, we were unified in Justinian's time. Now we're not unified at all in the Holy Roman Empire and it's destructive and everything. But the insight, the basic insight on Justinian that Dante has is that There are things to which you are called in your lifetime that are mixed with sinful things, although the achievement of them itself is beneficial and good. But it engages you in difficulties and even sins potentially that for you, because you are a mortal man, appear unavoidable, but that in paradise, you put off those things and you achieve, you have achieved actually good things. Uh, He likes to, Dante likes to pun on justizia uh, in, you know, justice in Italian and Justiniano, his name. He did achieve righteousness or justice that was mixed with his desire for fame that was itself sinful, but he has put those things off. And what is very interesting is the putting off of things that seem very, very, very important in your own lifetime. You are Caesar, you are the emperor, you are the guy in charge, but at your death, there comes a time when that is all put off. And I think that that insight is a uniquely Christian insight. You are not worshiped after your death as Caesars before him were, but in your lifetime and for a time and for the sake of the Roman people, who you are and the fact that you are Caesar is desperately important. Yeah. I would, I would at least throw into that mix that the, 
right understanding of your vocational place, where you actually are in the world, not where you want to be, but where you actually are, is one of the means by which God and his providence keeps your sin in its bounds and Mm -hmm. uh, wrecks, that is R-E-Q, it for good, uh, moves it into good. And it is often when we attempt to escape those places where we already are to seek some good somewhere else that 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 flesh gets out of control. But what an, what a fascinating insight. I mean, I remember someone saying once something along the line that, you know, no one goes to seminary unless they want people to listen to them talk. Right. And, and there's, there's something really insightful there. Like the, every man who, who puts himself forward is obviously arrogant. And yet uh, this is a noble task that he desires. And so, uh, for the current Lutheran zeitgeist, where we're, I see us as largely, despite our theology, attempting to be perfectionists, uh, attempting to live sinless lives to the level where we can't talk about our sins uh, or our our failings sounds so weak. Um, we can't talk about something like hunger for power as an unavoidable reality of those who are, in fact, in power. And uh, that seems more dangerous to me than the hunger for power itself, uh, the law, the lack of this insight. So uh, I, I want you yeah. to just kind of say it again, basically. I I think that the incapacity to talk about it is on a very basic level a spiritual failing. And it is one of the things I think most detestable, not just in churches, but in all of life, when a person obviously wants something badly and can't even admit it to himself, let alone others. Now that the desire may be good, the thing may even be good, but he needs to admit that he wants it and that therefore it may become something evil to him, though it was meant for good. If he can't admit that he wants it, then he really does not understand himself. And that is far more dangerous when given any modicum of power than someone who is not pretending maybe even to himself that he's humbler than he is. Hmm. And I think that the understanding of humility that a Christian should possess, not least a Christian emperor like Justinian, humility does not consist in how you behave or talk in front of other people. It consists in a right estimation of yourself and of your position in life and of what you desire. And arrogance, therefore, is not simply the way that you behave in front of other people. It may be. But I think on a spiritual level, arrogance consists mainly in an incapacity or an an incapacity to acknowledge or maybe sheer ignorance of your estimation of yourself, your real desires and associated things. So I think that the, the estimation that Justinian provides the poet of himself is an estimation that is not ultimately lying. He was Caesar but now he is simply Justinian and he is in blessedness despite what being Caesar in once entailed. So then let's move into Hagia Sophia to close us up. Yeah. The last, last, not in sequence in his life, but I think the place to end is this marvelous monument of beauty, the Hagia Sophia, the church of holy wisdom that Justinian erects, not as a new church, but on the site of something destroyed in a series of riots called the Nikah riots, 
where political factions in the city of Constantinople are organized along the lines of sports fandom, (laughs) Uh, chariot racing, the blues and the greens, respectively. And these riots have, there are theological elements because theology is on the surface of Byzantine politics. There are purely political elements. It's really not important. The goal of the rioters eventually is to overturn Justinian's rule. He survives this. Nonetheless, large parts of Constantinople are destroyed by the rioting, including the Church of the Holy Wisdom, as it was before Justinian had the domed church. We now still have standing with minarets around it in Constantinople. And so what he does, and this is so much his legacy that much of the iconography surrounding Justinian will usually have him holding a model of the Church of Holy Wisdom, the Hagia Sophia, as iconography of Constantine I, will have him holding a model of the walls of the city of Constantinople. He attempts something architecturally astounding which is this enormous dome. Uh, Of course, he envisions this, but then has an architect construct it. And so what comes out of the Nikah riots is not only a firmer hold on power that he has, because he survives that difficulty, that enormous difficulty in his own home city, but he also brings out of it something far more impressive and beautiful, so beautiful that when you know the, the proto-Russians, the Rus, are trying to select a religion to belong to, and they travel to Constantinople, and they see the liturgy of the church conducted in the Hagia Sophia, they'll say, we did not know whether we were in heaven or on earth. And that comes out of immense difficulty, uh, nearly being taken down from his throne, and therefore, of course, his life ended somehow quickly. Out of that comes a project that really in its beauty endures to this day. I mean, the Ottomans didn't even have the audacity to destroy it. They tried to co-opt it, but they did not destroy it. To me, that's the most stunning thing. Uh, Given the the history of Islamic removal of false religion, they're they're pretty good at it, that they kept it and just drew all over it really says something. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Right. Precisely. Closing thoughts? Don't take Justinian as a model for absolutely every part of life. That's not the intention. But I chose a Christian layman partly to say that there is far more to life than theological debates, but that whether you are lay or clergy, and even if you are engaged in theological debates, to take as an exemplar of a certain kind of life after a collapse has already begun or happened altogether, as an exemplar, a person who did not look back in order to mourn, but looked back in order to move forward. And that he used as the substance of his life, the recovery of many things. And we'll talk about that a lot next week in order to bring about things that in their beauty or in their clarity, whether churches or the laws of the empire were really new they were more beautiful or they were clearer than what came before. So in that sense, life was actually better after the collapse. And because that's true for Justinian, I think it can also be true for us. Mm-hmm. Uh, to quote the preacher of the Old Testament one more time, to give to the simple, brilliance. To give to the initiate, a framework of certainty. Holy wisdom, get you some. It's a free gift, just ask, God gives it. You're listening to A Brief History of Power. 
you know where to find us or you would not be here.